0: Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free.
1: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
2: Hi, it's Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to New Tech City. A few weeks back, we had a guy called Mike Caprio on the show.
1: I have lived in Williamsburg in Brooklyn for now for six years.
2: Originally from Cape Cod, Mike is now a software engineer in New York who works for a big tech company. He's also really into hackathons. He helps run one for NASA called the Space Apps Challenge. Anyway, I was talking to Mike about how New York could get even more tech-friendly, and he mentioned, like practically everyone does here, that the city needs better broadband.
1: I have not been able to get Verizon Fios. It's terrible. It's, really, it's almost like we're a backwater when it comes to, to high-speed bandwidth.
2: Well, it turns out that someone from Verizon was listening to the show.
1: After we spoke, uh, Verizon actually contacted me directly and said they wanted to help me get Fios installed on the second floor of my walk-up. And they sent a small army of technicians and had me hooked up in about four hours. So needless to say, I'm extremely happy that I now have really fast 75 megabit download speeds.
2: So now Mike has his broadband, but he says most buildings in his neighborhood still don't. (laughs) This week, with the one-year anniversary of Sandy here, we wanted to not just think back on that devastating storm, but consider, one year later, what did the cable and wireless companies, the technologists, and we, the consumers, learn? If another Sandy hit, would we be in the same situation? And on just a normal day, without a hurricane in sight... Why is it so tough to get people like Mike an internet connection? So welcome to The Connectivity Show. Later, you'll hear from one neighborhood that created its own public Wi-Fi.
1: We spent a lot of time on on rooftops. We spent a lot of time in cellars. We've gone through a lot of drill bits.
2: But let's start with the cable and wireless companies and the big picture. It's safe to say that they do not like this woman. Hi, it's Susan Crawford. I'm here. It's a Friday morning. It's a bright morning here in New York. Susan Crawford has advised the president and New York's mayor on tech and innovation policy. She's a professor at Cordoza Law, and she teaches a class on the First Amendment at Harvard's Kennedy School.
3: I have to tell you, I wasn't here for Sandy because I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time.
2: And Susan's written a book called Captive Audience, The Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power in the New Gilded Age. She makes a compelling case for why she thinks the country is at the mercy of the telecom industry and that crunch time is coming. Here's a chunk of my interview with her. So I'm going to start out with listing a few names here. AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, Time Warner Cable, Sandy. When I say those names, what springs to your mind? Well,
3: what comes to mind is that when we have a disaster, we don't have any confidence that any of these companies are actually going to make sure that we can continue to communicate with our loved ones. Because we've deregulated these giant companies who actually control internet access in America. They're under no obligation to have particular levels of backup power. They don't have to make sure that people can continue to communicate. They're just doing what makes sense for their profit motives.
2: So, let's I'm remembering myself after yeah. Sandy and it was weird like I was able to use my phone for a while but then the cell towers went dead and I, I, what what happened? Well, the basic problem was power in the city. So,
3: without electricity, you can't charge the cell phone. You also can't get the cell tower to work. But what you can do in advance of a disaster is make sure that everybody has a lot of backup power to the cell towers, to maybe making sure that they're uh, rolling around trucks called cell towers on wheels so that we can continue to connect and charge our cell phones. That kind of backup resilience was not in place before Sandy, because it's not required. It's not particularly in the interest of the companies to do it. It's all up to them. It's a matter of their grace, not of government oversight. And here we are a year later. Has anything changed? No. In fact, it continues to be the case that both the FCC and the State Public Utilities Commission are looking into this, but have not expressed power to ensure that these levels of backup assistance are in place. So let's go back
2: then. How did we get here? There's a weird system that's been set up here where the country is sort of divvied up between them, right?
3: Yeah, we're subject to many great divides. So basically, cable has won the wired high-speed Internet access marketplace. It dominates all over America, and especially for high-capacity connections, more than 85% of Americans have just one choice, which is their local cable monopolist. Also, the cable guys divided up the country among themselves. They said, you take Minneapolis, I'll take Sacramento, and they never compete in each other's territories. The big phone companies, AT&T and Verizon, they're actually mostly concentrated on wireless these days. Two-thirds of Verizon's revenues come from wireless. AT&T has announced that it's going to be backing away from the copper wires. They gave us DSL. So they have built a little bit of fiber, which might compete with cable. But for most of Americans, they've got no choice but their local cable monopoly. And there's no oversight. Over the last 10 years, we've steadily deregulated this sector, hoping that competition instead of regulation would protect consumers. But it turns out that where consolidation and cooperation is possible, competition is impossible. And we've learned that lesson.
2: you're saying that despite being competitors – they're actually great buddies. <laughs> well, it makes a lot of sense. It's like, well, I'll take those states down there, you have those, mm-hmm. and let's lobby together to make sure it stays like that. Is that what you're saying? That's what's happened.
3: So we're stuck with the cable guys for the wires. And here's the really sad story for the country cable is not the best technology, it's not future proof, it's not symmetrical, meaning you can't upload with as much vehemence and you know, creativity as you can download. The only thing that's going to work for that is fiber, and there's no incentive from either oversight or competition for the country to make an upgrade to fiber. I mean, I have to
2: say, I talk to a lot of business and tech people in New York City, Mm. and you ask them, like, what's your number one request? Broadband, 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 broadband. They can't stop talking about it. How is it possible that the people who are allegedly driving the new economic engine of the United States aren't getting what they need to grow their companies? Well,
3: New York has a lot of charms, density, all kinds of urban appeal. What we don't have is a terrific high-speed Internet access connection at reasonable prices. We have not, as a city, overseen this facility. The problem's going to come when startups move to places like Kansas City or Chattanooga, Tennessee, or Lafayette, Louisiana, where they've got fiber networks for very cheap prices. New York has not made that decision
2: yet. I mean, I just have to pick up on some of the names that you just said. I'm sure they are lovely towns, <laughs> Chattanooga, Kansas City, And, but I'm sorry. I live in New York. Why on earth would those cities, I mean, why? why do they have a better situation than the n- number two city in the nation for tech?
3: It's all about policy. It's where you set your priorities. And this city has not set it as a priority to get world-class fiber infrastructure to all the businesses. It's really terrible in Brooklyn and Queens. If you're a new startup moving there, there there's no chance you're going to get an inexpensive fiber connection, which you're going to need for your new business. So right now, it's just a few cities across the country. When there are 20 cities, New York is going to have to pay attention and change the way it does things. Now,
2: Chattanooga, it's municipal broadband, that's right? right? And in Kansas City, it's Google that's come in. That's right. What... The, let's let's talk about what the other options are when and if new york does wake up what are the possibilities every time a street is opened up
3: in new york like right outside my apartment building this morning Con Ed is at work when you open up the street put in conduit make sure that there's a lot of extra space in that blank tube Mm -hmm. for fiber to go through. Mm -hmm. Make sure that the city uses its rights-of-way to push forward a fiber network that serves everybody. What Chattanooga did was ride on top of its existing electrical utility and use their rights-of-way. That would be difficult in New York City, but New York has a lot of power over the streets. And get this, in Manhattan and the Bronx there's actually a facility regulated by the, the city of New York called Empire City Subways. It was set up in 1910. It's supposed to provide Infrastructure throughout the avenues in in Manhattan and the Bronx. Problem is Verizon now controls Empire City Subways. It's not completely in their in their interest to let competition serve business buildings in New York. So we've got a screwed up situation in our beloved city. And I'm really, really worried about it. Certainly my top priority for the next mayor. I'll be in there making as much noise as possible saying, let's fix this. It takes time. This is like the root canal of policy. You have to open up the streets, (laughs) make sure that conduit's there, string fiber into buildings every time you're maintaining a building. The city could insist that every building in New York is fiber-ready, that it has a point in the building where fiber can come in and where competitors can serve.
2: Now, with fiber, just a technical question, fiber would make... um, Quicker, easier access. But what about in an emergency situation? Is the fiber going to. Does that really mean like we still need to think about copper if there's another Sandy? What we need to think about is backup power because we're
3: all going to mm-hmm. be exiting copper. There's no question. And we make, need to make sure that we've got ways of getting power sources into the city that aren't now present. We need alternative sources of energy. And I know the Bloomberg administration did a lot of thinking about this. As far as I know, they haven't yet implemented the idea of just changing the energy grid around the city so we're not so
2: dependent on a few points of failure for electricity. I was saying to you, like, I can smell Sandy in the air today, that mm. damp sort of leaves on the ground sort of really bringing me back viscerally to what happened a year ago. What can we do a year from now? Sh- should OK, we've recovered. Let's think. What can we do? When, when I walk out the door of this, this studio, what can I as a consumer
3: do? Well, I want to capture that feeling of being completely unconnected. The most human desire, our central need is to be connected to people around us. And so remembering how bad it was in Sandy, is really important because we should be driven to demand of the new mayor in New York City that this be a top priority. We've got to get this infrastructure in place, lots of backup power all over the place, alternative sources of energy, maybe solar on the street corners of New York City, whatever we can do to make sure this doesn't happen again.
2: And just to be clear, if Sandy... Sandy, God forbid, another Sandy, did happen next week, would be we be in the same situation? Yes, we would. Susan Crawford, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. We reached out to the cable and wireless companies to ask them what they've done to prevent a repeat of what happened after Sandy. A lot of it just comes down to preventing a loss of power, they told us. For example, Verizon says that they've, quote, moved backup generators to higher floors. Sprint says it's working on deploying new permanent generators at its cell sites, and it has a new fleet of cows, cell sites on wheels, that it can deploy to neighborhoods. Okay, so that's the big picture of the business of connectivity. Now let's go local.
0: So if Sandy were to happen tomorrow, Mm -hmm. would the neighborhood be more resilient from a communication standpoint would that make a difference
2: absolutely you're hearing new tech city's own Ilya merits talking to tony schloss schloss is director of media programs at a community group called the red hook initiative and if you don't know it red hook is a peninsula-like neighborhood in brooklyn that's cut off from the rest of the borough by a highway red hook was ravaged by sandy no heat no water no communication it was cut off even more than usual from the rest of the world so in the days after the storm, people pitched in at a makeshift communications hub where they could email their friends and relatives. But since then, that hub has been built out to a whole free Wi-Fi zone surrounding one of the city's largest housing projects.
1: If there was another disaster, not only does the network exist, but we have a team with Brooklyn Fiber and the digital Storage. We have a team of 10 to 12 residents and people who are invested in the neighborhood who could go out and get that network up immediately, you know, and show people how to use it.
2: Red Hook's Wi-Fi doesn't come courtesy of any of the big three New York City providers, their Cablevision, Time Warner Cable, or Verizon. It comes from a small local startup that wants to change the way people connect to the web. Here's Ilya.
0: Almost three years ago, two brothers decided to start an independent internet provider, just like that. Eric Vexler is the younger one and the quieter one. I am, uh the technician at Brooklyn Fiber. His big brother, Rob, is sitting next to him, grinning from behind a pair of dark sunglasses.
1: (laughs) That's pretty modest. Uh, His name is Eric Vexers. He's the CEO of Brooklyn Fiber, and I am the vice president.
0: Basically, Brooklyn Fiber is a two-brother business. But what they're up to is a lot bigger than running a lemonade stand. They're offering an alternative to big corporate broadband providers. The idea came to Eric Vexler when he was commuting to an IT job in Manhattan and griping with his neighbors in Red Hook about spotty internet connections. In Red Hook, the service would go out for, you know, weeks. Eric Vexler wondered, if the cable company won't come quickly and make a repair that lasts, well, how hard could it be to start your own broadband provider? Vexler found a wholesale bandwidth supplier. He spent his life savings on equipment, a core router, licensed radios, and network switchers. But actually building this high-capacity wireless network was the hardest part. Yeah, it was a lot harder
1: than I thought. We spent a lot of time on on rooftops. We spent a lot of time in cellars. We drill through, you know, these, these old walls. Yeah, we've gone through a lot of drill bits.
0: Wow, this is a Best view of the city. fantastic view. Yeah. Today, you can see their handiwork from the roof of the Fairway Building. It's a converted 19th-century warehouse overlooking New York Harbor and Lower Manhattan. So this is where you work. Yeah, this is uh, this is my office, if you will. <laughs> so if you look around, you can see, you know, the various radios that we have propped up on the building here. It's the perfect location, because unlike most broadband providers, which rely on hard cables, Brooklyn Fiber beams a microwave signal from up here to its customers in the low-rise neighborhoods we're looking at now. This radio here services 106 Ferris and a few buildings next to it. These radio transmitters leap out from the edge of the building like little gargoyles. Okay, I'm just going to reach over the edge of this um, little platform and touch it. Yeah, it's um, a white piece of plastic. I can cover the whole thing with my palm, with my kind of outstretched fingers. It uh, doesn't really look like much of anything. Yeah. What does one of these things cost? Uh, these here that you're looking at are about 150 each. That's cheap. It's super cheap. There are at least a dozen of these transmitters mounted on the fairway building, and more on some nearby properties. Brooklyn Fiber claims close to 100 customers, and it's profitable. For years all across America, there's been very little competition to provide high-speed Internet. One reason? The cost of laying cable and clearing government regulatory hurdles was just too high. The Vexler brothers believe that's changing. The brothers say in five years, they want their service to be available to anyone in Brooklyn. For WNYC, I'm Ilya Merritt.
2: Okay, so let's go a little further here. How do you prepare your city, future-proof it, from another storm like Sandy? Well, one of the technologies being used in Red Hook is something called mesh wireless networking.
1: And what a mesh is basically is it's a bucket brigade. So not every hotspot has to have a wired connection to the Internet.
2: Researcher Anthony Townsend is big on mesh networks. Here he is on a panel I moderated at an event run by PopTech called The City Resilient.
1: Some of the hotspots can just throw the Internet packets to the next hotspot, which throws it to the next one. And so you can build a network that covers an entire community, only paying for a few of those expensive wired connections back to the Internet.
2: Townsend has a new book out called Smart Cities. His city, Hoboken, New Jersey, was hit viciously by Sandy.
1: We lost our power for a week. We lost all of our telecommunications. We lost our rail connections into New York City.
2: But it won't happen again, says Townsend, because he and his fellow techies are taking matters into their own hands.
1: I want to make sure that Hoboken never goes off the grid again. And so the tech community there... Um, is organizing to build what I'm calling a Hoboken safety net.
2: That safety net will basically be an inexpensive solar-powered rooftop network. It will connect to the Internet at many different points, creating that mesh that he's talking about. So if one connection goes down, the network reconfigures itself and finds another route. Townsend calls this self-healing, and he's planning on setting up numerous connection points.
1: We're going to shoot across to the city. We're going to try to shoot to a data center in Secaucus where there's tons of bandwidth. That's what the hedge funds use. We're going to have a satellite connection.
2: So even if the entire northeastern seaboard of the U.S. goes offline, Hoboken will still have basic communications to respond to a disaster. At least that's what Townsend claims. (music) Mesh networks. Expect to hear more about them. They're already being used as part of the One Laptop per Child initiative. The Occupy Wall Street demonstrators set one up. There's even something called the Free Network Foundation, a group that's committed to what it calls digital self-determination. We've got links to all of it at newtechcity.org. Okay, so we've talked about all kinds of connectivity, cell phone service, wireless, and hardwired internet service, but we want to wrap up with a word of caution.
1: Going into the kitchen now. Water made it up just below the countertop. You can see the line there on the dishwasher.
2: That's Shane Woodall describing the damage that Sandy did to his home in Coney Island, Brooklyn. He made this video to show insurance agents.
1: There's the water line, about waist high.
2: While Shane's home was terribly damaged, his business wasn't. His small CPR training company was saved by the cloud. Shane used an internet storage service that basically backed up his entire livelihood far, far far away from the storm.
1: The website code The uh, customer databases, my accounting software and taxes, everything, it all would have been gone. I would have been in deep trouble.
2: The service that Shane used was called Backblaze, but there are lots of others. Carbonite, CrashPlan, Mosey, to name a few. After Sandy, Shane called the company and they FedExed him a hard drive with all of his data on it the next day. And now, a year after Sandy, Shane is a backup maniac.
1: I have my iMac. I have the external hard drive. I have what's on Backblaze. And now I also have critical business data on another external hard drive that lives in my backpack that goes with me wherever I go. And a copy of that data on my laptop as well. So I guess five copies of everything. Jeez, Shane,
2: five backups. But it reminds me of a sign that my dentist had in his office that said, you don't have to floss all your teeth, just the ones you want to keep. Backing up your data is like remembering to floss. A total drag, but the alternative is way worse. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Manoush Zomorodi. Connect with me on Twitter at Manoush Z or just go to newtechcity.com. Till next week.